This morning, congregation, if you would take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3, and you can find that on page 3 in your pew Bible. We're going to begin, uh, Lord willing, a brief Advent series considering the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh. Uh, we begin where Scripture begins, Genesis chapter 3, with the first gospel promise uh, given in Genesis 3, verse 15. And our plan is uh, to make, so to speak, stepping stones throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophecies that have been given, uh, and then make our way eventually to the fulfillment of those prophecies by considering uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in the accounts of the Gospel. Uh, so we turn first to the reading of Scripture Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. 
And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially boys and girls, by way of introduction, there are some events that happen in the history of the world that everyone knows about, or at least eventually they come to know about them. Uh, The big events, the main events of the history of the human race. Uh, You might, boys and girls, know of some of these. You might learn of some of them at school. Uh, Maybe you learned about the discovery of the United States of America, or at least the land that now is the United States of America, by Christopher Columbus. Maybe you learned about the pilgrims even in this last week and of their coming to America. Hopefully at some point uh, in your schooling you will learn about World War I, also World War II, uh, about D-Day and the invasion uh, that took place. Uh, on D-Day. Maybe you'll learn about uh, when man landed on the moon. Perhaps you'll also learn about the events that took place on a date known as 9-11. For some of us, these events are permanently impressed upon our memory. We can remember exactly where we were. Perhaps when we first heard the reports of the Twin Towers collapsing. Perhaps we can remember exactly where we were uh, with some of these notable events. But I would present to you this morning the truth that there is one event that stands above all events. Both in its importance and its far-reaching consequences but also in the sense of wonder that ought to accompany it. And that one event, of course, is the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or what we might call from a more theological perspective, the incarnation. The fact that in the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God took unto His divine nature a very real human nature, a human body and a human soul, So that He was made like us in all points with one exception, one major exception, that He was without sin. And this event, I would also present to you, is the event which the entirety of the Scriptures focus upon from the very beginning to the very end. And this is the event that also the Christian church ought to focus upon. Not just once for a brief few weeks, in a unique Advent season, but all of the life of the Christian and of the Christian church ought to be lived focused upon this one great transformative, life-changing event that in the fullness of time, God became man. We want to begin looking at that event as it was first prophesied in Genesis 3, verse 15, the words of our text this morning. Uh, We read there as follows, as the Lord God speaks to Adam and to Eve, and indeed to all of the created beings and the created realm. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now these words are spoken by the Lord God specifically uh, to the adversary, to Satan, in the embodiment of a serpent, uh, upon the event of the fall. And we'll look at all of these in some detail this morning underneath this theme, the promise of the seed of the woman. And we want to unfold this promise by first of all noticing the need for the seed of the woman, and then secondly, the source of the seed of the woman, and then thirdly, the work of the seed of the woman. So we begin our consideration of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ this year, this Advent season, by taking Genesis 3, verse 15, the first gospel promise and considering the theme, the promise of the seed of the woman, the need, the source, and the work of the seed of the woman. So first of all, then, the need for the seed of the woman. To say it quite pointedly, we will never be able to truly understand nor appreciate the central event that we especially commemorate at Christmas time, that of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that of the nativity scene of the Lord Jesus Christ until we first understand humanity's fall into sin. You might say it this way, we cannot just go directly to the manger scene, but we must first begin in the garden. There in the garden, in God's original creative work, we find one man, one woman, Adam and Eve, the image bearers of God, created and designed to live in a unique covenantal fellowship with God, and we find them inhabiting a pristine environment without any flaw, without any opposition. Uh, And there, obviously, Adam and Eve worked. Work is not a result of the fall. They worked, but they worked without toil. They worked without sweat. They worked without oppression. They worked without opposition. Uh, They worked in the fulfillment of their divine calling uh, to cultivate the creative realm, to bring it all into further and greater subjection to the Lord God's glorious kingdom and rule. But then something, of course, underneath the sovereignty of God transpired. Something really transpired. And we call that the fall. We want to also make clear this morning that we believe without any shadow of a doubt that the events that are described in Genesis chapter 3, although they transcend the scientific explanations of a worldview that denies any sense of the miraculous, we believe the events as described in Genesis chapter 3 are a historical reality. That these events really took place. That there was actually a male human being given the name Adam and a female human being given the name Eve and that they were the first human beings created by an immediate act of an Almighty God. The Almighty God. And that there was an actual day, although we don't know exactly when on the calendar that would have fallen, there was an actual day in which Satan, the fallen archangel who had rebelled in heaven against the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, used, and of course, underneath the sovereignty of God Almighty, he used, Satan is, using a serpent. 
to come and to attack that very center focus point of God's creative work. The image bearers of God. And we state this not just because it is a highly debated truth, but we state this because this is a foundational truth. And in order for you and I to properly understand what takes place thousands of years later in a little town known as Bethlehem, we must first understand what took place there in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve have been created to walk with God, to talk with God, to fellowship with God, to serve God. But also we want to stress, Adam and Eve had been created to enjoy God. To enjoy God on a daily basis, but also on a continual basis, on indeed an eternal basis, in that original covenantal framework. But something happened. Something happened because Eve and then through Eve also Adam rejected the authority of God, rebelled against the will of God, and fell underneath both the state of guilt of sin, but also into the corruption of sin. And this all resulted in their miserable situation. Their miserable situation. And and maybe you can already see uh, the connection that we are making to what our Heidelberg Catechism calls the knowledge of our sin and our misery. This miserable condition that Adam and Eve, because they listened to the instigation of Satan, because they fell into sin, this miserable condition is now when God comes to commune directly with Adam and Eve instead of enjoying the fellowship of God, they find themselves frightened by God. And not in a healthy, godly fear, a proper respect and adoration of the majesty of God, but rather in the shameful desire to escape from the presence of God. Now when God comes in the cool of the day, it's not as if He doesn't know where Adam and Eve are, and it's not as if He doesn't know what they have done. But as God now approaches Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve find themselves filled with the shame that is always the result of a sinful life. And instead of welcoming a communion with God, they run and they hide from the face of God. Just allow me to point out that it is an absolutely foolish activity to try to hide from the presence of God. It will never succeed. And yet so many people try it. You will never ever accomplish escaping the omniscience of God. And yet so many think, if only I can deny God's existence, if only I can deny God's sovereignty, if only I can deny the reality of the supernatural, I will then be safe in the shame of my sin. Absolute foolishness. But the impact of this fall is not just upon Adam and Eve, but by extension, it applies to each and every other member of the human race. And this is because Adam represented mankind or humanity in that original covenantal framework. Romans 5, verse 12 makes this clear. There we read, just as though one, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So when we read Genesis 3, we should not read it just from a distance, so to speak. 
as persons peering into something that takes place that has no direct correlation or impact upon us. Uh, My grandfather often told us, grandchildren, that when we read Genesis 3, wherever it says Adam, put your own name in there. Now I know you could argue, well, grammatically, that's not a faithful translation, but Adam does mean man. And the point he was seeking to emphasize was it's not just Adam. It's you and it's me. And the old saying, Adam's fall, we sinned all, is certainly true. But we need to also examine ourselves as we prepare for the commemoration of the Lord's death in the administration of the Lord's Supper. Do do we believe this? You know, there are times in which persons argue over the historicity of Genesis chapter 3, but they do so in kind of a disconnected fashion. It's not just some historic event. It points out, or at least it ought to point out, our desperate need for the seed of the woman. And so this morning, but also in the days that lie ahead within this week, I would encourage you to reflect within your own soul. When you read Genesis 3, when you read the account of the fall into sin, you see that you are part of that. And that the guilt that mankind finds themselves under and the corruption of mankind is not just a guilt and a corruption that apply to Adam and to Eve, but also by nature apply to you and to me. Well, if we come to understand our need for the seed of the woman, then we'll be eager to understand our second point, the source of the seed of the woman. Uh, Given the impact of man's fall, which we call theologically, and again, hopefully we learn these terms, and not only the terms, but also the truths that are being communicated by the terms, Uh, the total depravity and the total inability of fallen humanity. The source, if we know, and again, not just in an academic, intellectual way, of course there has to be the involvement of the mind, but if we really know the truth, the reality of total depravity, that every single part of my being is dreadfully impacted by sin to the extent that I also have total inability to do that which is good, that which is right in and of myself, then we will know that the source for the seed of the woman must be something outside of ourselves. The source, you could, if you were taking notes, you could just put behind the source, say, salvation is from the Lord God. It's an it's a absolutely sovereign source. And, and this is emphasized... Uh, with the very grammar uh, in verse 15. Notice, and I will put enmity. The Lord God speaking to the serpent, and by extension then also speaking to Adam and to Eve and to humanity. The Lord God does not say, now Adam and Eve come and we together will put enmity. The Lord God does not say, I will do my part And Adam, if you will do your part, and Eve, if you will do your part, and if hopefully all of your descendants will do their part, then perhaps we can establish some 
type of enmity that is opposition or separation, even hostility between the powers of light and the powers of darkness. No, God simply comes and in profound simplicity says, I will put enmity. Not I will try to put enmity. Not I will see if I can put enmity. Not I will attempt to put enmity. I will put enmity. And this enmity, uh, the word means uh, an opposition, a hostile opposition. So that all throughout human history, especially seen there on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is the power of light and there is the power of darkness. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of Satan. And there is this continued opposition between those two powers. And this sovereign source must be appreciated as we receive it in faith. What is faith? Faith is a sure knowledge or a certain knowledge, but also a hearty trust, a reliance, a reliance upon God and what He is doing as the Lord in what you might say is the first historical revelation of the establishment of the covenant of grace. Now, of course you can say, well, the covenant of grace was established from eternity past with what theologians sometimes refer to the covenant of redemption within the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit decreeing the election and the salvation of the particular chosen individuals. And that, of course, is true, and we take great comfort in that fact. But there's also the historical revelation or manifestation of the covenant of grace that we find here for the first time in Genesis 3, verse 15. And, of course, the establishment of the covenant of grace is all based upon what God and His sovereignty has done. And so the promise is given. And the promise is given that God will come and will put enmity, and this promise is all based upon the seed of the woman. Now you notice our translators help us by throwing in some capitalizations uh, with seed and also what the seed will do. So in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent or Satan, and between your seed, between the descendants, the spiritual descendants of the serpent of Satan, those who remain in their fallen condition and opposition to God, you can think of Psalm 2, and her seed. Now our translators help us there by capitalizing seed, indicating this must be something other than a human being. Yes, a human being, but something more than a human being. And he shall bruise your head. And so the promise is that divinity will break into the line of humanity. Divinity will break into the line of humanity with the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise that faith holds on to in the midst of the darkness of the reality of our fall. This is the promise that ultimately points to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know for sure what exactly Jesus Christ said to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. 
You remember the two travelers, don't you? They were downcast. They would have been those who were described by our text of part and those who were weak and those who were feeble. Those who were discouraged. And they expressed their discouragement to our Lord Jesus Christ in His resurrected form. They didn't understand who He was. and They didn't understand what had happened. And so Jesus, as He walked with them, and as He communed with them, received their expression of discouragement. We had thought that He was the Messiah. And then the text says that Jesus opened up the Scriptures to them. Again, I don't know for sure, but I can imagine that He would have began with Genesis 3, verse 15. And that He would have said this is a divine, sovereign promise. That there will be enmity and opposition between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And yes, the seed of the serpent shall bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that is in part what takes place throughout all of history, but that is especially what took place in those three dark hours upon the cross. As hell itself was unleashed against the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan bruised the heel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but then by the power of Almighty God, the third day came and the tomb was opened up to reveal the glorious fact that death had been conquered in the grave, had been crushed, and that the satanic forces had been absolutely demolished by the work of the seed of the woman. And I can imagine Jesus Christ saying, do you see it now? Yes, my my heel was bruised, But Satan's head is crushed. And all of his powers have been defeated once and for all in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is exactly what the church throughout all of the ages has held to this promise. I just want to give you one example if you want to turn in your Bible uh, or just follow along uh, as you listen carefully. In the Gospel according to Luke and in chapter 1, you'll notice that the faithful of Israel, they held to this promise uh, in the midst of their perceived darkness experience. Luke 1, uh, verse 54 and 55. We have here the song of Mary as she receives the revelation of what will take place. It begins in verse 46, of course, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And then verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His seed forever. She reflects in faith back to the promises that were given to the forefathers. The covenantal forefathers. In Genesis 17. In Genesis 12. In Genesis 3. And this is in part why we become so passionate about the historical reliability of these chapters. Because here is the first lane of the foundation of our Gospel hope. And again, we can reflect upon this and we can ask ourselves, not only do we see the need for the seed of the woman, but do we also perceive that this must be a sovereign source? Because don't ever forget that Adam and Eve tried a different route at first. Adam and Eve tried to deal with their sense of shame and the reality of their guilt of sin by themselves. 
They made fig leaves for themselves. Now, if we've been properly trained in catechism in Sunday school, we know how foolish this attempt on their part was. If you allow your mind just a bit of an imagination, can't you see them there in the garden? They're covered with a sense of guilt. Too embarrassed even to look at one another. And they begin to search for a covering. Can you see them there sewing their fig leaves together? Trying to hide the shameful parts of their bodies? And then they hear the approaching of the Lord God in the cool of the day, and they know that their fig leaves are not going to work. And so they go and they run and they hide. I just want to make this pastoral point of application because I believe that perhaps the words that we speak this morning may come to a person or persons who are trying to fabricate a covering of fig leaves. Whether your fig leaf be works righteousness, whether your fig leaves be some type of traditionalism, maybe even our fig leaf is our own theological knowledge. Well, I know all of these doctrines. I know the five points of Calvinism. I can describe each flower of the tulip. Theologically, all very well. But that is not going to make you right with God. There must be the clothing with animal skins. Now what does that point to? Of course it points to there must be the reception of the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fig leaves will never cover a person in the holy sight of God. But sacrifice will. And so we must initially and continually come to an end of all of our own works. And that is something we can also examine in this week of self-examination. How do I hope to appear before an Almighty God? With a fig leaf of moralism? With a fig leaf of traditionalism? Or even some type of celebration of conservatism? No, but only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And only covered in His sacrificial blood. Only then can I meet with God. Only then can I have a confidence with God. And so I earnestly beseech you as I beseech myself, examine if this is your only ground for confidence, spiritually speaking, that you know in the depths of your soul this promise is a sovereign promise of what God would and has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. A brief word about the work in our third point. The work is quite clearly revealed, although it's not fully developed. The description of the work, He will bruise the head of the serpent. 
The idea is not just some bruise. You know, boys and girls, we get bruises sometimes. Maybe you you bump your shin and you get you know that little black and blue spot. And you say, oh, I got a bruise, and it it kind of hurts. Maybe for a day or two. Now, that's not what is happening in Genesis three verse fifteen. It's not as if Jesus Christ is just going to, and I say this respectfully, but it's not as if He's just going to kick Satan in the shins and give him a black and blue shin for a day or two. The Word indicates a complete crushing. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and just destroy God's created realm, but but there are certain bugs, and we have dominion over the created animals, there are certain bugs that you don't want in your house. When we first moved here, there seemed to be a superabundance of crickets. Maybe I shouldn't say this from the pulpit. My wife probably didn't see half of the crickets that I destroyed in the garage. I, I didn't relocate them. I didn't take them up and carry them out to the wilderness and let them go. I stepped on them. Crushed them to the point where they never moved again. I want you to have that picture in your mind. That's what Jesus Christ has done to the power of the devil. Now we don't see it in its fullness because there's still an ongoing struggle here in the life that we live. But know this morning that the victory has been definitively gained. And we still await the, the perfect revelation of that. And that's why also in Romans 16, verse 20, the Apostle Paul picks up on this promise uh, as the motivating factor for the Christian life of optimism. Uh, and he says in the conclusion of that great epistle to the church in Rome, uh, he says in Romans 16 uh, and verse 20, "...and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly." Now. Christ has crushed Satan from all of eternity in the eternal decree. And He has crushed Satan historically there upon the cross and then especially upon the resurrection and the ascension. But He will also crush Satan completely as the God of peace in the final revelation of the coming again of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So we live between these two great comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in between His first coming in the Incarnation and His second coming at the Consummation. Uh, And we can live as Christians looking both back with confidence at what Jesus Christ has already done, but also then, based upon that, we can live and we ought to live forward with a certain optimistic spirit, knowing that Jesus Christ will come in the Consummation when He returns in visible glory to definitively once and for all crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And we also need to examine whether or not we live with faith in this aspect of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ also. If we are those who are characterized by a certain optimistic confidence, even as we live in a fallen world, that we know the God of peace will crush Satan underneath our feet shortly. And so we leave these words to your consideration and to your further reflection. 
especially as we enter into this Advent season, but also as we make preparation for the administration and the reception of the Lord's Supper. Amen. At this time now, we'll turn our attention to the form that we have in our Forms and Prayers book for the examination in light of the coming administration of the Lord's Supper. You can find this form beginning at page 37 in that Forms and Prayers book. As we read through this, just notice how the themes that we have attempted to expound this morning are picked up as we are exhorted to self-examination. A dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself that we may now celebrate the supper of the Lord to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely His remembrance. The true examination of ourselves consists of three parts. First, let everyone carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins, and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that He, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine their heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God, that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own. Indeed, so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine their own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before His face and whether they, with full sincerity, strive to lay lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy, and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of His Son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the Apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, 
those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creatures, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, His Word, and His holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to raise discord, factions, and dissension within the church or in the state, all perjurers, all those who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy against their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous persons, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper so that they feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to the Supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our flesh, faith, and struggle against the evil lust of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning, especially for Your Word and for the promise that is given clearly within Your Word, the promise that You in Your sovereignty and also in Your grace would accomplish the destruction of our great enemy, uh, Satan, and all of his forces. That you would subdue our uh, iniquities in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we now enter into uh, the week of self-examination, we ask Heavenly Father for spiritual illumination that we might rightly know ourselves, but also that we might rightly know Jesus Christ and the humble exercise of genuine faith. So bless us in Your grace and in Your mercy, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.